Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 610 Media acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, the Gubby Gubby people, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and future. A quick disclaimer before we start. Tear It Down is a podcast about all things mental health. Therefore, it may contain coarse language, adult themes, and subject matter that may be distressing to some listeners, such as suicide, self-harm, and references to drug and alcohol abuse. Please, listen at your own discretion. If you yourself are struggling, you can reach out to Lifeline on 131114. Hey and welcome back to Tear It Down, tearing the stigma down around mental health, one story at a time. I'm Jamie Pulse, and I have a cold. But hey, it's not the end of the world, I can deal with it. It's all good, but I've just got a bit of a croaky voice. Anyway, this is episode 8. I hope you're staying well and good and healthy in these COVID times. No matter where you are, thanks for joining. Anyway, today's guest is Marley Silva. And Marley Silva is an Indigenous Australian podcaster, writer, and a speaker. Marley wrote a bestseller called My Titter, My Sister. She's also a volunteer charity worker, a consultant, and also sits on the board of a charity called ID. In 2019, along with her sister, Marley was named as a finalist in the Australian Human Rights Commission Young People's Human Rights Medal. So welcome to the show, Marley. Hi, thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. So why don't you give the listeners a bit about yourself? And I know you start your podcast the same way every time. What's the question that you ask? And would you mind answering that for yourself, for the audience? Yeah. So with my podcast, Always Was, Always Will Be Our Stories, I ask a question that is really common um, in Aboriginal culture. It's one I've heard quite a lot growing up. When you meet someone new, you ask, what's your name, who's your mob, and where are you from? Um, and I would uh, answer that by saying, yeah, my name is Marley Silva. My mob are the Gamilaroi and Dungadi people of New South Wales. Um, but I was born and raised on Darawal country south of Sydney in an area that you'd probably know as Cronulla. Um, I'm an author, podcaster, um, and I'm yeah, I always find myself uh, in different situations, I guess, telling stories. So I, I feel really lucky to to do that every day. Well, it's great to have you on. And we have something in common. I was actually born in Sutherland Shire uh, at the, at the uh, Sutherland Hospital and grew up in Deer Park for a few years before I moved up to Queensland. So that's pretty close to, to where yeah. you are. Yeah. We, um, I used to go to primary school camp around Deer Park, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty cool because my dad used to like manage that camp. It's probably the same camp. Oh, no way. That's so funny. It is such a small world, hey? Yeah. But um, yeah, I call myself a Queenslander because I was pretty much, I was pretty much like three or four when I moved up here. So, but yeah. You... But the question is, do you call yourself a Queenslander when it comes to origin? Yes, I do. Because oh. even though it's your state of origin... Isn't it supposed to be yeah. where they played their first club game? Yeah. So. They're like junior reps. So did you play junior reps in Queensland? <laughs> no, I didn't play football. I, I, my mum made my mum and dad made me swim every afternoon, like club swimming, which is great. I'm thankful for it now, but there was no time for rugby. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, did you play football? Because your dad is a former professional football player. He played for the Canterbury Bulldogs, Rod Silver. And what a player he was. Uh, yeah, he, he was all right. Um, no, I, I never played myself. I always wanted to when I was little, but um, I think dad was a bit afraid of having his daughters be in a full contact sport. So uh, both my sister and I 
you know, stuck it out in, in touch footy. And, um, yeah, I can't say I have any of the talent that they had. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, we sport is like, a, I guess, a big part of our identity as well, um, you know, just as, as fans and um, uh, because of the community that comes with that, I think. Yeah, definitely. So one thing I want to talk about is you've got three podcasts. So do you want to take us through those podcasts? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> so I started... Um, my podcasting life, I guess, a few years ago um, when I was approached by the Mamma Mia Network to um, start one and be a host. And before that, I'd had no experience and I'd barely even listened to a podcast. So that was called Titters for Titters. Um, Titter is an Aboriginal slang word that means sister. And I got to interview some pretty incredible Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women from all walks of life. Uh, and they basically shared their wisdom and, um, you know, their ways of overcoming barriers to succeed. So that was pretty amazing. I did two seasons of that. And then um, once I felt that I kind of had my sea legs in the podcasting world, I wanted to stand, stand out on my own um, independently and be a 100% um, Aboriginal owned and run podcast. So that's when um, the next evolution of Titters for Titters came, which was always was, always will be our stories. And the only difference really um, is that I have male guests on um, mm-hmm. as well with, with that version of the podcast, which is great. And then this year we started a new podcast, um, which is a weekly sports podcast uh, with mm-hmm. myself, uh, my sister and our friend Georgia. And it's called Chicks and Balls and we wrap up all the the good things in the sport we're going absolutely mad for the olympics at the moment so much fun to talk about and um yeah it's completely different to what i've done in the past but it's a lot of fun and we are yeah i'm loving it it's probably the most fun i've ever had working on a podcast because a lot of the other topics and and um conversations i've had uh with my two previous podcasts can be really heavy and it's really hard to kind of shake um off the way um, you know, these incredible storytellers I get to speak to, they impact you and they leave things with you. Um, and it's, yeah, it's hard to kind of pack it away. Um, so it's it's nice to be able to kind of just talk about something for the fun of it. Um, so, yeah, finding that balance has been really nice. And one thing I've, I've learned listening to your podcast um, is how important stories are to the Indigenous culture. And I love stories, but it's on a deeper level for your culture, it's much, it's ingrained in, in your DNA. It's, it comes from centuries and centuries, and these stories are passed down and they're so important. Bless Sorry, you. I'm just sneezing. <laughs> <laughs> Can I include that in the podcast? <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, that's something about me. I have a lot of allergies going on, but that was really, thank you for making that point. I feel terrible for having ruined that because it's, it is really important. <laughs> no, that's fine. At least it's you sneezing and not me. Um, sorry, was the question, what is the significance of storytelling? Yes. In, in our culture? Yeah, I thought yeah. so. When I, when I speak about this sort of stuff, I, I like to make it really clear that I only speak for myself and, you know, my family. Um, I don't speak for any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person because we all have very different experiences and, um, I guess understandings of, of who we are and what our culture means. But to me, my understanding of my culture growing up you know, from knowing that we've been around for over 60,000 years and we have survived that period of time through storytelling and through the passing down of, you know, we have an oral storytelling tradition and the way that we've always learned and grown and survived things is through the process of elders passing down knowledge um, in the way, yeah, that is storytelling. And so it is a very, for me, um, you know, growing up, I was always the kid who was telling stories. Um, my mum has, you know, stories of me, uh, you know, when I was quite young, she stopped reading us bedtime stories because I would just make it up for me and my sister. Um, it's very much something that's quite natural to me. And I even ran into my kindergarten teacher when I was like 19 at university and she asked me what I was doing. And I said, oh, I'm studying creative writing. And she was like, oh, you're still telling stories. So this is very much like the core of who I am. And I think, you know, when I'm self-reflective about how that happened and, um, you know, why it's so intrinsic to me and, and something that I've, you know, just never even been conscious of that I'm doing, 
is because it's such a big part of my culture and it's very much in my veins, you know. It's a continuation of that tradition that's existed for so long. So um, it's the most natural thing I think I could have done and I feel really lucky um, that I have, yeah, I guess um, the yeah, the, the backing of ancestors who have done it so well. So, um, and it, there's so many incredible storytellers uh, in our community uh, that, you know, I've been able to see and learn from over the years as well. So, yeah, and I, and I feel like it really has the ability to make change. So that's that's a great privilege as well. It does. And you look, it definitely has helped me um, in my, as a, as a white fella, um, it has helped me to appreciate your culture much more deeply and understand where you come from. And look, years ago, not now, but years ago, I did have that attitude that so many people might have that, look, what my ancestors did to the Indigenous people was wrong, but that's not me. And I feel ashamed that I had that attitude now because that's completely the wrong attitude to have. Um, Now I feel very, very saddened and uh, ashamed that my ancestors did what they did to you guys. We invaded you. It's not colonialization or whatever it's called. It's invasion. And we took your homes and we took your kids and we put them into, tried to get rid of the Aboriginal culture and tried to breed you out. And it's, it's disgusting. Um, yeah, but as a young fella, I did have that attitude. Look, that was them. This is now. Let's move on. Hearing your stories and having the guests you have on, it's very powerful to hear the hurt behind it and the hurt behind some of the things and you guys still feel it to this day. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, no. Thank you for being honest about your own journey. I I often, I think these days, have a lot of interactions with non-Indigenous people um, who are, you know, on the on the I'm really woke side of things um, and aren't honest about their their own unlearnings they've had to do, which I understand and I don't expect people to to kind of say that to me. Like if you've grown, that's great, and I'm I'm stoked that that's the position that you're in. But I appreciate that honesty um, because all of us are constantly learning and unlearning the way that um, you know we exist in this society, regardless of what background you come from. There's biases and stereotypes that we're raised with, and and that can not necessarily come from inside your own home, but outside, wherever you are, whatever you read. So it's really important for us all to be conscious of, of doing that. And um, yeah, it's it's definitely um, really nice to hear that there is that level of empathy that can come from, from engaging with these stories because, yeah, there's stories that I've heard from my guests of experiences that I, I've never had and never will probably. And um, I feel I've come away from those conversations with such a deep kind of passion to to try and do something about it or to let more people know about it. So, yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. No, no worries. And look, look at um, Kathy Freeman in the 2000 Olympics, and she when she won her gold medal and she put the Aboriginal flag on and, and ran around. She was criticised for that. That's that wasn't that long ago. That was what, 21 years ago. So I mean, it's discrimination and prejudice is is still alive and thriving and we need to do something about that. But the, then on the flip side of that, you know, it was brilliant to see the Matildas in their first game, um, you know, at in Tokyo kneeling with the Aboriginal flag. They've got a couple of um, Aboriginal women in that team and they decided that's how they wanted to um, show respect to their culture and, and there wasn't that criticism. So it's nice. There is this yeah. progression. I, I feel really positive about that um, and I think that, yeah, some days and some experiences you feel like it's we're going nowhere, but other times you see stuff like that and it's like, okay, we're getting better. Yeah, exactly. And you, you know, uh, my, one of my favorite UFC fighters is Bam Bam uh, to Visa. Um, and I love him so much. And when he comes out, he's he's got the Aboriginal flag and he's proud and he's he's from the area, Western Sydney, and he and he likes to um, represent uh, your culture. And it's it's really cool to see that he's. He, and he's doing really well and he's making some great uh, play, uh, fighting in Las Vegas and all that. So that's, that's really positive. Um, Absolutely. So in your book, you talk about identity issues and that's probably where, I don't know if that's where your mental health journey started, but do you want to talk about being in that position? You're talking about being younger and, try, and trying to justify your Aboriginal culture to people? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Um, a couple of weeks ago, 
ago in an interview, I had the interviewer ask me, oh, or kind of make a comment, wow, you seem so evolved, like you, you're you very sure of, of who you are for someone who's still relatively young. And I thought about it and I realised it's because from such a young age I've been questioned and co- over and over again, who are you? You say you're this but you look like that. What, you know, there was this mismatch from a really young age and this um, forced me to be able to know who I am and be strong in that really early. So growing up in the Sutherland Shire, um, you know, we know this is a place that is infamous for race riots um, and there is a particular demographic that I grew up around. It definitely has changed. But when I was, you know, a kid, it was a very high white Anglo-Saxon population and hardly anyone who was not that. Um, So myself and my sister were the only Aboriginal kids um, at both our primary school and high school. There were a couple of Koori kids when we were quite young in, in primary school, but they uh, they were gone quite quickly actually after um, we got there. And uh, in primary school, kids don't really care. Um, well, that was my experience. No one really said anything. You kind of just went <laughs> uh, about your way and they would notice things like always used to wear this little beaded bracelet with the colours of the Aboriginal flag that said pride on it. And I remember um, one of my friends being like, oh, that's cool. And then that would be it. Um, so I didn't realise um, what a nice kind of carefree world I was living in at that point. And then I got to high school and within a couple of weeks of starting, you know, I'm 12 years old at the time and my dad came and picked me up from school one day and a couple of kids saw him and their response to me the next day was, why is your dad black? And I had never heard someone be called a colour like that. You know, we, we're black fellas and that's so different to calling someone black in, and in the way they delivered it. I remember it so clearly. It's one of my clearest memories of my life um it felt like an it felt accusatory and um I uh, through that conversation and trying to understand what they were talking about I realized um yeah my dad's got brown skin because he's aboriginal we're aboriginal and the response was I've never met an aboriginal person before so that very quickly set up the environment um that I would spend you know my formative years in uh I, in some rooms, was the token Aboriginal kid that teachers would call on when we talk about things like Charlie Perkins and the Freedom Rides um, and expect me to be a spokesperson. Um, And, you know, that's obviously a little bit more innocent, but it definitely still made me feel uncomfortable because I didn't like being pointed out like that. Because when you're a teenager, who likes being pointed out like that? Um, And then there were far more malicious rooms that I was in where peers would, one peer in particular, um, made it his life's mission to make every day of my schooling um, really difficult by greeting me each morning with a new racist joke about Aboriginal people. And he did it because of the way that I would react. Um, And I quick, I, well, not quickly, I eventually learned not to react and just to ignore him and then he stopped. Um, But, you know, he did it in front of teachers and no one did anything. And then I had teachers blatantly um, make racist comments in class about Aboriginal people not having jobs and being on the dole and those sorts of stereotypes. And then, um, you know, the the kind of pinnacle was having um, pieces of mine kind of scroll graffiti that Marley Silver sniffs petrol and that was kind of in my last year of school. Um, And, you know, it was just so blatant and the teachers tried to brush it off as they didn't really know what they were saying and then no one got punished. Um, and I tell all those stories because um, coincide well parallel to those experiences, I myself was a very, very unhappy teenager. Um, I really struggled to make friends. I really struggled socially um, to feel like I fit in or um, had people around me who kind of understood me. And I think a lot, of, again, a lot of teenagers go through this sort of stuff. But it's only once I got out of high school that I realised, um, you know, how horrible I felt was directly linked to the racism that I was facing. Um, I 
did not fit in. There was no, I felt like no one was backing me. So when I was facing these sorts of things, there was no one there to go, are you okay? Or that's not okay. And that was the stuff that I really struggled with. Inside my household, I'm so lucky to have grown up with a family that I have. They are amazing and supportive. And, you know, the best thing that you could be was a black fella in our house. And you felt so strong there and so strong around my family. And then the second that I would leave, it would all kind of, you know, be taken out from under me. So, um, yeah, the my experiences with anxiety really set in um, when I was probably 15. 15 was prob- probably where um, it started to become um, debilitating and uh, I had to to eventually do something about it but it's interesting though because that's where it really started to get bad and noticeable for other people but my first panic attack that I remember I was in year one um so it's interesting and I think um that's only something I've thought about recently like that's obviously something that has been bubbling under the surface for a long time um but it, it yeah really came out when I was in uh, yeah, around that 15 age bracket. So how bad did it get for you? Um, there was a, a whole summer holidays period where I didn't leave the house um, and probably didn't get out of bed before one o'clock any day. Um, and at the time, um, there was glandular fever going around um, some of my age group. And so that's what, kind of what my parents thought it was. And I got tested. It wasn't. Um, I was just, yeah, really unwell. Uh, in a, in a different way, you couldn't do a blood test for. Um, and again, we kind of look back on that now. And and my, uh, I guess, way of dealing with things that, um, you know, is probably not appropriate all the time. But I always kind of go with humour. And so I look back at that time, and and we all talk about it. And I go, oh yeah, that was like my depression summer. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, it was it was really. It, it, now I, I think about, you know, the time I lost um, and how I, uh, you know, wouldn't go to parties and I, I wouldn't go to these social things because I, I had so convinced myself no one wanted me there. And, um, yeah, it was really for the last two years of school, which are meant to be, like, most fun. And I definitely went to some things, but um, a lot of the time I didn't really feel like I was present because I was – so anxious or didn't want to be there or thought that, yeah, no one wanted me there. So, um, yeah, it, it got to a point, um, probably the, the, the big turning point where we couldn't kind of ignore it anymore was just after I finished school and kind of, I think a lot of people experience when that, that big change comes, um, not being able to kind of handle it. And I, yeah, again, I'd, fell back into that not being able to lo- leave my bedroom um, for a little while. And, um, yeah, we finally went and got professional help, which is, you know, something I wish I'd done a lot earlier. Um, but it's really hard when you're in it because at the time you're like, no, I'm fine. Like this is not something um, that I need to do or I was really scared of being weak. I think that's probably one of my biggest fears is being per- perceived as weak, which has been something I've had to work on for a fair while. So you, when you got professional help, you went to a GP and then got referred on, did you? Or what path did you go down? Yeah, I went to, went to the GP, do the little mental health assessment um, that I've, yeah, I had to, I've done a couple of times now and it always feels um, a little bit strange. Some of the questions feel um, a little bit uh, I don't know, a bit unnatural. Some of the questions I, I remember the first time I was kind of like, oh, you know, I don't know if that's how I would characterize my feelings, but they're kind of just black or white questions to get you um, to, to be able to use those uh, sessions with a, a psychologist. So yeah, that's the way that I went through um, and went to a um, yeah psychologist locally. Um, and yeah, at first I'll be honest, my first experience with a um, psychologist I really wasn't something that I enjoyed. Um, I think it was the psychologists themselves. I think that that's a really important part of the journey to to point out is you have to find your right fit. Um, and and that, yeah, the first instance wasn't really right. Um, and 
Um, I'd also like um, seen a counsellor who was also a naturopath. So there was like a big discussion around, um, you know, what I was eating and what kind of supplements and blah, blah, blah as well, which was an interesting experience, but definitely didn't get to the root of the problem. Um, and then I, um, I found someone that worked. So, um, yeah, you have to do a bit of, um, I guess, a bit of dating of yeah. your um, psychologist, which is, is, a, is a thing that you just wouldn't know. Um, but it was, yeah, once you once you get to the, the right one, that that's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. So six weeks, like a whole summer holidays, that's like six weeks, right? So six weeks of, of not yeah. leaving your house, barely leaving your room and not getting up before yeah. 1 or 2 p.m. as a 15-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's it, yeah. I know. Hearing it back is um, is pretty, pretty intense. And I think um, yeah. It it's it's makes me sad. You know, I've got cousins who are that age now, and and thank goodness they they seem to be a lot happier than I was. But I would be gutted if if that was what they were doing. But you know what? See, this is my humor kicking in again now. It's prepared <laughs> me well for you know being in lockdown because I, I don't have to be in the house for a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. So, um, were your family really worried about you during that period? Yeah, they definitely were. And that's, you know, me learning that sort of stuff in conversations now as an adult. But at the time, I I, I think I, I just had the blinders on and I couldn't really see outside of myself and what was kind of happening around me. Um but yeah, they they definitely like we talk about it now and and my parents feel uh a fair amount of guilt for not having kind of, um, you know, pushed me to to see someone um, earlier. But I think that none of us had experienced this before and um, didn't know what to do about it. So, I, I mean, I sure I don't have any kind of resentment or think that they didn't do the right thing. They supported me as much as they could um, and continue to. It was just, I think, a matter of me being able to you know, put my hand up and say, let's go and talk to someone. Yeah. Look, I, I don't have the same exact experience, but I did have 10 years of anxiety and one episode of bad depression before I went and saw someone. And I look back at that and think, you're such an idiot. Like, you could have, like, because I got treatment now and I'm just like so much better. I remember being like 19 and living in Canada and, you know, partying and not sleeping very well and um, just, I thought I was going insane because something was happening to me. I was starting to get depressed and I felt like I was going crazy. And it was the worst feeling because you're so alone. You think, yeah, fair enough. Somebody's psychologist might work for them, but it's not going to work for me. I'm too far gone, you know, and all that, those feelings. And my way of, I don't know, I think I told my brother, I was like, mate, something's not right with me. And he's like, just watch Family Guy and have a laugh, mate. But, you know, I was so, I was so far gone. And I just look back at that and think, I wasted 10 years of my life feeling so anxious, I should have just put my hand up. And my all I did was read a uh, self-help book, which is just <laughs> like, why don't I go to a doctor sooner? You know, but it's just, you don't want to put yourself in that situation. And, and yeah, anyway, I feel the same way. I, I look back and think, what a waste. Yeah. And vulnerability is so hard. And like, I'm not going to act like, you know, once I found the right person to talk to, I was like going to them every week and um, then I was doing everything and then I was cured because I went for about a year and then I was like, oh, I'm fine. And then stopped going. And then a couple of years down the track was falling into same habits and, you know, having kind of persistent panic attacks and really um, struggling. And and then I was like, oh, okay, I've got to go back again. And so, um, you know, it ends up being a bit of a cycle. And then um, I found myself in that same position, you know, half probably this time last year. Um, and it, that this was, you know, for a completely different new reason. Um, I was completely burning myself out and working six, seven days a week because I work from home and we're in lockdown. And I was like, oh, well, like I have to, you know, I don't know if you remember these sorts of memes when we first had the COVID stuff where I was like, oh, well, Shakespeare wrote King Lear in lockdown. And so I took that on quite personally and was like, I have to do everything and, you know, completely fell apart. And, um, you know, again, realized that I'd been neglecting, um, you know, talking to someone about it and then um, ended up 
it was I ended up speaking to a new psychologist who um, was again it just it was so amazing and it was a new experience because it was like we're doing it all over the phone because of COVID. Yeah. But again, you know, it, I think it's important to point out that when you go through these sorts of situations, you don't like it's okay to kind of fall off a bit and then have to come back because I think that's very human and, um, you know, I've done it over and over again um, but I'm so much better at dealing with things because of the consistent kind of um, seeking that help. The show will return after this quick break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And do you still get panic attacks now? Yeah, unfortunately. Um, it's, you know, the last one, I had been pretty good this whole year, um, but uh, when uh, old mate Gladys announced the, the beginning of this lockdown, um, yeah, I really struggled and it really triggered me. Um, I think, again, because it kind of goes back to that feeling like a loss of time. I think that's something that's, um, yeah, frustrates me these days and, um I again I, I'm very lucky because I get to I can do all my work sitting from where I am right now. So I'm not affected in that way. And then I feel a lot of guilt when I feel like that. But that's a big part of the journey as well as like we're allowed to kind of feel our emotions. So that was the last one. But um yeah, I've been uh I think a, a lot better in the last couple of years than what I have been. So I'm yeah, I'm getting there. And it's just about knowing when I think the best thing is I know exactly when it's gonna come on and like what I need to do. So it's um yeah, it's it's good to have a bit more control over it. And what are your panic attacks like? Like would you want to describe them? I guess it kind of in a feeling like something like in a small room, like everything's kind of coming in and it feels quite claustrophobic and then I just hyperventilate and I can't breathe and I can't see out of it sometimes I can't remember like what has happened in it um or yeah and I yeah it's it's and I think the the big thing um that took me a, a while to kind of recognize is you know after because biologically your body can't panic for more than 20 minutes. So, um, you know, I would have that hyperventilating for around that time or be inconsolable and, and, and wow. upset. Um, and then there's sort of a hangover of it for a couple of days. And I think that's something that um, took me a long time to realise that why am I feeling so crap three days after I've had my panic attack? And it's like, well, actually, this is it. This is the whole of it. Um, and yeah, it's about switching off and, you know, taking the time away from your work, I think is, is really important. Yeah. I mean, I've had panic attacks, but for those who haven't, it actually feels like you're about to die. It's so terrifying. And that's why so many people go to the emergency room thinking they're going to have a heart attack or they got chest pain because you do feel like you're dying. So yeah, yeah, it's a horrible I've feeling. done that. <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you I, don't know I, what it is, it's so scary. Oh. It is, mate. I've um, I was convinced I had a high blood pressure, and I was yeah. getting a high blood pressure test when I joined a gym once, and uh, they just wanted to see where you're at physically. And I felt that panic start to rise as she was doing the blood pressure test, and I had a full panic attack while getting my blood pressure read, and obviously it was through the roof. And she's like, "You need to go to the doctor or see someone because <laughs> that's very bad." And ever since then, I've, I was convinced I had high blood pressure. So I went out and bought a blood pressure machine. And every day I would put it on and check my blood pressure. And I'd have a panic, panic attack during that blood pressure reading. Oh, God. So, yeah. I mean, the mind does funny things. But now it's, it's all sorted. But, um, yeah. Anyway, that was a rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about some other mental health issues. Um, the Indigenous rate for suicide is five times higher than for non-Indigenous what other impact does mental health have on the Indigenous community that it doesn't have on non-Indigenous communities? Well, I think the biggest difference between um, the 
and mental ill health that we see in the Aboriginal community and, and that in the non-Indigenous community is the fact that research shows us that our suicide rates are directly correlated to the point of invasion. So prior to there being European settlement in this country, suicide was not a concept that existed in our culture. So think about how enormous that is. That that was not even something that had been recorded or it happened. It just didn't happen. Um, so thinking now, you know, 200 and something years later, um, we ha- now have the highest rates of suicide um, in the country. It is not only, um, you know, that many more times likely than non-Indigenous people, but it's the biggest killer of Aboriginal kids between the ages of five and 17. So think about that age bracket, five years old and 17 years old. How do these babies even feel, you know, be in situations where they feel that hopeless? There's so many different elements to it. And I'm not going to try and act like an expert, um, but it's something that, you know, sits very close to home um, for me and my family. Um, you know, it. the most horrifying thing is anecdotally I do not know a single Aboriginal person that I know personally who has not been affected by suicide. So we have all lost someone to it. Um, it that's what it feels like, honestly. I really don't know anyone who hasn't. And it kills me. Um, but it also speaks to the real life day-to-day impacts of, you know, um, essentially what we were talking about earlier, that that whole attitude of like it's time to get over it, I didn't do it, blah, blah, blah. But the systems that are in place actively work to still disadvantage Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so, you know, when there's more poverty created, there's more pressure and there's more, um, you know, turning to different kind of outlets that are bad and then there's we also have a really high incarceration rate that it's all correlated like people um I have been you know really lucky I would say lucky because I found the experiences um so impactful and and important um in the last couple of years to spend some time in some juvenile justice centers with um some young people who are locked up for various different reasons and every single one of them you know, has some struggles with their mental health or has experienced things that no child should ever experience um, and that's how they end up there and it's really, really devastating. Um, and it just, they, I, I don't think there's there's one answer to kind of why is this the case, um, but those that context is really important to understand and it's all intertwined. Um, you know, I don't, a couple of years ago, um, there was a really big focus in the media for a couple of weeks because there was um, five or so young girls around the age of 12 who took their life um, from different communities across the country. And, you know, that that should be the kind of stuff that keeps people up at night. Um, it's such a huge problem. And, yeah, again, I'm no expert. I'm just – I just know these, these sorts of statistics um, because they're a reality for for our community and um it should be something we're all trying to find an answer to it's it's yeah it's truly horrifying but you're involved in a number of charities now including including mental health for youth people um do you feel like a kind of certain weight on your shoulders being a spokesperson and being in this this public spotlight now that you are um, no, I wouldn't say that. I, I think that I feel really lucky to be heard um, and be able to tell some of the stories that I've seen. So, yeah, the two charities that you're speaking about, I'm, I sit on the board of Cultural Choice Association, um, which directly focuses on um, youth suicide prevention in our communities, and ID Know Yourself, which um, supports Aboriginal kids in out-of-home care. So, again, there's a lot of correlations between the two kind of issues that um, both the charities are approaching, and um, it means I get to to talk to a lot of young people and, and hear about them and then be able to share, you know, what their experiences are and um, get more people to to focus on it and be aware of kind of what's going on. So I definitely don't feel any kind of weight on my shoulder for that stuff. Um, it's, yeah, it's a great privilege to to be a part of it and to connect with these 
really incredible because as a board member you you don't do the day-to-day stuff of the the charity you get to watch the incredible people who um do the hard work so i really admire them i feel like i learn so much from the staff on the ground who put their heart heart and soul into working with these kids and um yeah that's that's something that really inspires me and actually um gives me so much energy to work uh in all my other parts of my life i guess Back to your book, uh, one part that was really moving for me was you talking about the identity issues you had being like fair-skinned um, because your your mother is white and your father is Indigenous. And, and you come home and your dad has a really cool analogy for you to show you. I won't ruin it. I'll let yeah. you talk about it. I'll let yeah. you talk about it. Well, this is not something that he invented, right? Like a lot, okay. we use this a lot. But he, when he first told me, well, for a little while, I believed he invented it because when he told <laughs> me, I thought it was like the most amazing thing ever. Um, so what he did is um, you have two coffee cups, both filled with coffee. You add milk to one and look at them again. And obviously the one with milk in it is a little bit lighter coloured than the black coffee. Um, but he asked me, are, are they both still coffee? And it took me a second to kind of understand what he was saying. Um, and I was like, yeah, they are both coffee. Um, and that's how he explained to me that it didn't matter what my skin color was, or if I have a white parent, it doesn't take anything away from being Aboriginal. And at the end of the day, uh, I'm still Aboriginal and, and your identity is so much more than what color you are. So yeah, that's, it's really, uh, a poignant and important way, I think, to to point that out. Yeah, and no matter how much milk you pour in, it's still coffee. It's never not going to be coffee, and that's one thing yeah. that he he's you know that's cool. And that became like a mantra for you. you. You'd say to yourself, "I'm still coffee. I'm still coffee," or to remind yeah. yourself because that was such a yeah. You're such a uh, what's the word when you're impressionable. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> when you're trying to find yourself, I guess. Mm. How do you sit now in your mental health journey, apart from the anxiety and depression? Uh, is there anything else going on in your life that, that you struggle with? No, I feel really, um, especially, you know, in these kind of lockdown situations now and through COVID, I feel as much as I've had, you know, moments of where it's been pretty tough, I think like everyone, um, I, I I feel so much more in control of, of what's going on. And um, I think also being really open about it has helped me a lot and being honest um, with the people around me. And, and that's, you know, my friends, not just my family about, you know, I'm not having a great day or this is why I, you know, have pulled out of something or something like that, like that. And having a, a really strong, supportive network around me um, means that it really doesn't feel like it's something that um, disadvantages me anymore or um, has too much of an impact. Um, it's in, it's funny because I do obviously a lot of public speaking and things that um, you know scare the pants out of of a lot of people, right? Like um, public speaking is the, the biggest, most common fear in, in human beings, and people are then quite, um, you know, confused if I do talk about my anxiety or, um, you know, some of those experiences that I've had. They're like, oh, wow, you're just like you're so confident on stage or you you don't seem worried about anything when you do that kind of stuff. And um, I have to explain that's not kind of how it works, but, um, you know, it's, it's also kind of um, helped me to explain to people, like, you don't know when anyone's going through what, you know, um, regardless of kind of what they look like on the surface. So, yeah, it's um, I, I definitely feel like I'm in a really good position. I feel really grateful. Um, but I also kind of remember the work I had to put in to, to get here and, and how to maintain that and, and keep looking after myself. And, um, yeah, I also encourage the people around me to, to do the same. So it's, um, yeah, no, I definitely feel really positive. Do you have any tips and tricks or apart from going to a psychologist or a doctor, um, that help you with your mental health that you can do at home? Like what's, what calms you? Um, I think to begin with, you know, really getting comfortable with being by yourself is, a, is an important thing and knowing yourself and being able to listen to your body and your mind and, and filter out kind of what are real thoughts and what are, what are fiction. Um, that's, that's an important practice to build in. But 
Um, I One trick I got taught by my psychologist, if you struggle with meditation like I do, because that's a meditation and mindfulness is a really big part of, I think, um, self-care. Um, but I told my psychologist, I can't do meditation. I, I'm not about that. Um, I My brain's too loud. I, I don't know how to switch off. So I find I, I run now. It's only something I picked up in the last 18 months before it. I absolutely couldn't run more than a K and now I like run at least five Ks twice a week and I find it is like active meditation for me. So um, it's the best way I can switch off my brain um, and it's really good for you and, you know, that's not for everyone, but finding your right bit of exercise I think is a really important part of your routine, whatever it is, whether it's swimming or running or just going for a walk, um, spending time outside and, yeah, getting those endorphins up is is something that's really important to me. Um, but then another form of meditation um, that my psychologist gave me is called finger yoga, which sounds really weird. Um, <laughs> but what she taught me is um, to kind of, it's, it's a really weird thing to explain, but um, start in the morning like a mindfulness sort of thing um, where you can be sitting with your coffee or you can be laying in bed still or wherever. And what you do is you put your pinky finger to your thumb and you take three deep breaths in and out and then you move to the next finger to your thumb um, and you go the whole way across to your like all of your fingers on both hands um, and then you bring it back and in that time because you're so focused on putting the fingers in the right spot <laughs> and counting those breaths you're actually meditating like it's it's okay. a, a much easier way for someone who, like me, finds it very difficult to turn their brain off to um, switch off or to silence some of those thoughts because you just focus on your fingers. And it sounds really funny and it might not work for you, but I was like, wow. Once I finished doing it, I was like, oh, wow, that actually worked. So yeah, and gonna, you can do it at any time. So it's Yeah, good. I'm going to try that. I'm definitely going to try that because I've got a busy mind as well. I can't shut it off. So yeah, finger yeah. yoga. I wonder if that's yeah. gonna make I wonder if that'll be in the Olympics next time. <laughs> yeah, nice. So uh before we sign off, uh do you want to tell the audience a bit about your book, um, My Titter, My Sister? How did that come about and what's what can the reader find in that book? Yeah, so it came about by um an Instagram DM from a publisher. So that doesn't often happen. That's not usually how people get book deals, and it's not how I ever expected to, but it was a you know, pleasant surprise. Um, and yeah, so it's a collection of stories about different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women I got to speak to um, who share their stories of strength and resilience. So how they've um, come through life and what they've learned. And some of them have overcome the unimaginable and are so strong and really inspired me. Um, and you'll kind of in it hear from a few different generations. Um, and yeah, it's it's been pretty crazy um that i actually um was able to to put that together and and had those women share so much with me i feel really lucky in that sense um so yeah i guess that's it in a nutshell um it's actually uh sold out at the moment and um we're in about to go into reprint so hopefully you'll be able to find the bookstore or in a, well you can get it on kindle like you kindle have, yeah so. <laughs> yeah and actually and actually my parents are reading it right now too on their kindle so oh cool yeah it's 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 really awesome to see look you should be proud because you know you're what you're 25 24 25 25 you're 25 you're a published author you've got three podcasts you're a role model you're on boards you're a charity worker um, you're a public figure, so you should be proud of what you've accomplished. Thank you so much. Thanks for the chat too. It's been a really good conversation. Oh, it has been really good and I really appreciate it. And finally, do you have any advice for non-Indigenous people to help bridge the gap or to help understand the Indigenous trauma and the hurt? Uh, I would say my biggest advice is to listen. So to listen you know, directly to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and diversify that listening. So um, actively seek out, you know, lots of different books or podcasts or films or TV shows, you know, tune in to NITV. The Point is a really great show to, to um, you know, tune into and see what's happening in our community on a weekly basis. Uh, you know, make sure when different topics come up in the news cycle that you are paying attention to them when they involve Aboriginal 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and also kind of actively look at how how uh, they're positioned because often our mainstream media can um, put it, paint us in a pretty negative light. So just being conscious of all those sorts of things and, and trying to hear directly from our community as a means of education is really important and also know whose country you live on um, and in, try and engage with the local community uh, when NAIDOC events happen locally. Hopefully by the time NAIDOC's around this time next year, we'll actually be able to do in-person um, events and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, get involved with that stuff and when it comes to you know, how you can be an ally and, and what you can do to assist, um, you know, yeah, listen to especially your local people um, so, yeah, you can play a part in what's happening uh, on the country you live on. And so for the listeners all around the country, um, how can they find their, the, the country they reside on? How do they find that knowledge? Yeah, so it's usually pretty easy to Google, um, but if you want to go to a really good source, there is a map um, of all the different countries that is interactive, if I'm not mistaken, um, on the IATSIS website. So um, IATSIS is spelled A-I-A-T-S-I-S. And so it's the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, studies kind of peak body. So it's a, got a massive collection of all the different um, bits of our history and uh, it, an interactive map so you can kind of zoom in and, and see, um, you know, whose country you live on and, and maybe it's different to where you grew up. So it's nice to know um, those things and it's like on the Australian map. Okay. Well, that's some homework for uh, all the listeners out there to, to know whose country you reside on. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Marley. Uh, you're an absolute legend and I encourage everybody to read your book and everybody to listen to your podcast and get behind you because you're a marvellous human being. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Take care, eh? Awesome. Have a great Friday. Thank you. Well, that is it for this episode. Thanks again to Marley for joining me and being such a great guest. If you want to check out Marley's podcast and her book, I've included the links in the show notes. I've also included the link to the map of Indigenous Australia so you can see which country you reside on. I strongly recommend you check that out and get familiar with it. Thanks again. See you next Thursday. Tear It Down is a 610 Media production. A special thanks to Audio Technica and Zoom for supporting me throughout my podcast journey. The cover art was by my talented sister-in-law, Courtney Woods. Theme song, beat number three by Bubba Beats. Follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you are listening to this now. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tear It Down Podcast and also at 610 Media Group. If you want to get in touch, you can head to 610mediagroup.com or send an email to info at 610mediagroup.com. That's S-I-X and the number 10. Cheers. If this episode has brought up any issues for you, please seek help. You can reach Lifeline at 131114. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.